Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we'll be asking whether people can be nudged into changing their health behavior. Supermarket trolleys were divided down the middle with a picture of attractive fruit and vegetables at the front of half of the trolley. And that did increase the amount of fruit and vegetables that were bought. Hearing about the science of weight watching. Where those calories are coming from, not only are they processed and digested to different degrees, but more importantly, how that nutrient composition of a food reaches the body is a strong determinant in how filling that food is. And discussing European innovation policy. We now have a commission that works not in silos or independent republics, but uh, where all of the commissioners cooperate together. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Both our regulars are here with me, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council, and my colleague Andrew Jack, FT Pharmaceuticals Correspondent. And we welcome back Fiona Godley, Editor of the British Medical Journal. Hello, Fee. Hello, Clive. So, let's start this week with the second regular contribution by her journal to FT Science. Duncan Jarvis of the BMJ takes a look at how we can persuade people to adopt healthier behaviours. Over to you, Duncan. Thanks, Clive. We can all be healthier in our choices. Chronic conditions like cancer, heart disease and diabetes take the lion's share of healthcare cash. And all can be reduced by eating well, drinking less and quitting smoking. So governments would love us to follow their health eating advice, but are also, in this market economy, reluctant to legislate or set prices to make us comply. This makes the idea of nudging us into health particularly attractive. Captured in a book by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, this idea of libertarian paternalism is taking off both here in the UK and over the pond in the US. Changing small things in the world that push us into making the right choices fits both their public health remit and political philosophy. But how effective is nudging? Well, the evidence at the moment is pretty thin. Professor Teresa Marteau, Director of the Behaviour and Health Research Unit at the University of Cambridge. There has been a study in America looking at school canteens and they found that, indeed, placing fruit at the checkout increased the proportion of fruit that was bought by around 70%. There's another recent study in which supermarket trolleys were divided down the middle um, with a picture of attractive fruit and vegetables at the front of half of the trolley. And that did increase the amount of fruit and vegetables that were bought. So I think that both those illustrate how people are sensitive to their environments. We can change what they buy. It's a whole other question how that affects what they consume overall and more importantly for population health, the extent to which those small changes will 
be shown to have any effect on the kinds of health outcomes we're looking for to reduce rates of obesity, rates of cardiovascular disease. So, nudging can work. But those effects are on small, discrete choices, not larger behaviours. Maybe they could accumulate to create better overall health choices, but not all nudges make us healthier. These small nudges in a positive direction don't seem to stand much chance when we've got much more potent nudges pointing in the other direction. Mm. So the example would be the widespread availability of cheap and very attractive foods high in fat, salt and sugar, and thinking about our, our built environments in terms of making it much much easier to get in a car than to walk or, or cycle. So these are very powerful shapers of our behaviour. So sure, it's going in the right direction, but the big question is what kind of impact that can have if nothing is done to alter the environment which is pushing us very effectively in the opposite direction. So, nudging might not be the best way to ensure the health of the nation. Back to you, Clive. Thank you, Duncan. Well, I think I share the note of scepticism that I detected in Teresa Marteau there. I mean, how are these delicate nudges going to work if, for example, the ferocious label on cigarette packets in most Western countries about how smoking kills you and worse still leaves 20-25% of adult smoking? Fiona, what do you make of nudging? I think we can all agree that nudging isn't new, but we can also see why it's quite an attractive option for governments around the world faced with this enormous problem of chronic disease already with us, but certainly going to be a huge impact in the future. Nudging seems to be potentially a cheap option. We know it's effective in the negative sense, but as as Therese Marteau said, we see it all around us, how negative health impact is achieved through or or effective marketing uh, through changes in the environment where things are displayed, cheaply available, etc., Um, The other reason it's attractive to governments is because it's not coercive and it won't require, at least people say it won't require, any legislation. I think my sense is that it would certainly help if we have more positive nudging towards better health choices. But I do agree that it's unlikely to make a real impact on its own. And I think we will need a legislative framework at the very least. An example is around the voluntary agreements that in the UK have achieved a reduction in salt consumption, but about less than 1% reduction, whereas in other countries where they've actually legislated for reduced salt in food, they've achieved much greater reductions, about 5%. Diana, are you nudgeable? I probably am on some things, but I think... I mean, this is very similar to encouraging young people to study science and... The nudging is very, very difficult to assess and evaluate the impact over a short period. And so you're nudging for a long time before you realise it did or didn't work. But on the other side, there is no no doubt in my mind that populations don't do what governments tell them to do in the same way as no teenager is going to study science because the government says it's good for the the country. So it seems to me that we're back down to market incentives, even if it's not regulation. Andrew? Well, I certainly don't believe everything should be coercive, although I think I do start from the point of view that some of the big reductions and changes in public health have been very state-driven, whether it's you know infrastructure and improvement of sanitation, whether it's legislation that really has curbed a lot of advertising around tobacco use, issues like that. I think some of the commentary in the last few days has been a bit too dismissive of nudging. You know, It clearly shouldn't be seen as an alternative, as a, as a substitute that would dominate. But I think... 
I think Fiona's right. I mean, I think the problem is, you know, clearly we are dealing with human behaviour. It's very complex. We have to tap into issues of sociology and psychology and people's understanding and try to create new ways to, to tackle these problems. And you need to give people the right sort of choice of foods, for example, to be nudged to buy. I mean, you mentioned salt content, Fiona, earlier. Legislation is needed, I think, to reduce that because people won't have a choice of low-salt junk foods in the supermarket unless governments force the manufacturers to reduce the salt level. That's what the evidence has shown. As I say, that voluntary agreements can bring the levels down, but by no means enough to have a real impact on health. And I think, you know, we we have to be intelligent about how we understand the physical environment and the prompts that are all around us. And I think it is a good thing that we use them more. But I would feel that we're going to have to get some form of government intervention to to make that happen on a wide scale. One of the biggest behavioural battles is to persuade people to eat less and make more informed choices about their daily diets. Earlier, we spoke to the chief scientist of Weight Watchers International, Karen Miller-Kovach, about a new approach to counting calories. For about 100 years, there has been a recognition that the calories that you see on a pack of food are the calories that are in that food as a food source, so that if you burn it to ash, which is how calories are measured, those calories are what are represented. For about 100 years, there's been a recognition that the human body, in terms of its digestion and processing of foods, does not act like a furnace. It's only been in the last 10 to 15 years that there's been a true recognition that where those calories are coming from makes a difference in not only how the body processes them, that we knew, but in how the body reacts to them, particularly in terms of providing feelings of satiety, how full you are, how long does that feeling of fullness last. What we've been able to do in the development of the ProPoints system is to bake into, if you will, a very simple system, this recognition that where those calories are coming from, not only are they processed and digested to different degrees, but more importantly, how that nutrient composition of a food reaches the body is a strong determinant in how filling that food is and how long it is before you're hungry again. And many of us think of foods as being just a single nutrient. Oh, well, that's a protein, or oh, that's a carb. In fact, the vast majority of foods are kind of mixtures of both, and what we tend to do is dominate it in terms of the predominant, you know, whatever that happens to be predominantly. But protein provides the greatest eating satisfaction, followed by fiber-containing carbohydrates, followed by non-fiber-containing carbohydrates, and then fat is actually the least satisfying. So, for example, if you are taking equal amounts, if you will, of, or of calories of, let's say, egg whites, that is going to keep you feeling fuller longer and actually provide fewer net calories to the body than the same 
number of calories in a whole egg because the yolk is, contains fat. And then going down the line in terms that versus the same number of calories, let's say, in a brown bread, which is containing fiber, versus the same number of calories in, let's say, a piece of, of white bread. The calories are the same, but how satisfied am I going to be with what I'm eating and how full is that going to make me? We should point out, of course, that Weight Watchers does have a commercial interest in this. But, Fiona, do you think that Karen's argument that we should take a much more sophisticated view of calorie counting, can that spread beyond Weight Watchers aficionados to the general population? I think that the general population is quite sophisticated, increasingly sophisticated about their understanding of this, and I, I absolutely agree that my own, speaking as an individual, understanding of, of what works in terms of satisfying hunger and what doesn't work so well is, is developed over the last few years, um, so that one knows that if you eat a lot of sugar, you end up feeling hungry quite much more quickly than if you, if you eat a more protein-based food. So I think this kind of information is helpful, and it does, it does speak to the conversation we were having earlier about instead of the automatic... Um, behavioural responses. This is much more speaking to one's rational mind. Diana, do you think the public has enough, what's the word, even scientific or nutritional knowledge to understand a more sophisticated view of what's in food? What we have here is very complex audiences, and it seems to me that the Weight Watchers approach will work for some audiences some of the time, but actually we need to slice up the rest of the population with different treatments and audiences and messages for all of them. Clearly, makes a message that we've got to be more complex than just looking at something crude like a, a calorie count. I mean, I, she was saying fat was, as it were, less satisfying, and yet this sort of research from David Kessler and others in the U.S. has argued that increasingly food has been eaten more and more because of that sweet spot manufacturers have found between sugar, fat, and salt. And on the other hand, just thinking about sort of not just the content of food, but also Issues like chewing, which clearly do make a big difference to the psychological sense of whether or not the body is satisfied and sated and then stopping eating. Finally today, in a total change of subject, we'll hear from Moira Gagan-Quinn, who's on her first visit to London after a year in the job as European Commissioner for Research, Innovation and Science. I caught up with her after she'd made a speech at the Royal Society promising a new era for EU science policy. And I asked her to explain what's going to be different under her watch. Well, first of all, it's the first time that we have a commissioner who has innovation in her portfolio. Secondly, I inherited a directorate general, which was instrument-driven. And now we have a directorate general that is policy-driven instead. And thirdly, we now have a commission that works not in silos or independent republics, but uh, where all of the commissioners cooperate together. We have a lot of policies that are cross-cutting. We have to find in my portfolio the economic policy that provides competitiveness and jobs and growth. And that's my priority and that's my focus. And how are you going to do that? First of all, we have the Innovation Union policy. That put innovation and research at the very heart of European policy for the first time. Just last Friday, we got the heads of state and government to debate this issue for the first time ever. They gave us very concrete and positive decisions from that council and now we go ahead and we implement the policy. Over the last few decades, EU research and innovation funding has been 
through a series of so-called framework programs. We're now in framework program seven. What's next? FP8 or something quite different? Something quite different that will recognise the changes that we're making within the Commission, where we have tackled simplification head-on and where all of the elements of simplification that I could deliver on my own have already been delivered, where the only elements that are outstanding now are elements that the Council of Ministers and the Parliament have to help me to put in place. We're going to have what we call a common strategic framework for a person applying for funding now to the Commission. They will apply once, there'll be one post box, one set of rules. And do you think there's going to be more money for science and innovation in the future within EU funds? Well, I would love if my Minister for Finance, Mr Lewandowski, would give me much more money. Let me say that I will fight as hard as I can to get more money, to maintain what we have, first of all, and get more if we can. One last question. The big topic in science policy over the past week has been Pfizer's announcement of its closure of the Sandwich Research Centre with 2,400 jobs at risk. Do you see that as a one-off, or do you think there are lessons for the UK and indeed for Europe? I think, first of all, it's a tremendous personal tragedy for all of the people who are employed in Pfizer and Sandwich. That's the first thing. Second thing, I think it's um, the company as a whole, because they're closing in Catania in Italy and in uh, Dusseldorf in Germany as well. Looking overall, it's a global policy by the company. It has nothing got to do with what's going on in the UK at all. I understand from uh, Minister Willits that the government is very focused on responding in a positive way. I can understand it personally too because I come from a city in the west of Ireland where digital many years ago decided to close down with the loss of 3,000 jobs. So I understand what a human cost there is to all of this. Andrew, do you think that David Willits and his colleagues in government will be able to, as Moira put it, find solutions? Well, it would certainly be nice to hope so for the the scientists whose jobs are at risk. But I have to say, I think it's pretty unlikely on any large scale. You know, it'd be nice to think there'll be some use that could be made of the infrastructure and some of the researchers can, can stay in that area. But I fear those who want to stay in life sciences, a lot of them will have to move elsewhere in the country, if not abroad. And those who want to stay in the region will have to change entirely the sort of thing they're doing. I just don't think that those large-scale, heavily invested bricks-and-mortar laboratories are really the future for pharma. And I think those that do remain, I mean, I think it's not quite true to say that there's no link to the UK or indeed to Europe, as you cited those, and she cited those other um, plants at threat. It is partly about this sort of nexus of combining large-scale pharma with biotech, with academic research centres, creating all sorts of informal networks and partnerships. And sadly, Sandwich was no longer part of one of those mixes. I know. What's going to happen to those scientists I mean, I worry, and like Andrew, one of the problems has been the lack of transferability of their skills. I mean, if their life science is sciences, it means they're going to have to move. And I suspect the fear of this has actually impinged upon Pfizer's recruitment for some time because it was out on a limb. It's not close to a research centre for other areas of science either. There isn't a strong university base for science and technology broadly close by, in fact, in the whole region. So it is a very, very difficult site. But I suspect that um, with the EU policy, we're going to see slight changes in the way 
R&D develops. I think there's going to be a greater emphasis on the demand pool on existing technologies. Now, that's the sort of thing that could develop around the Pfizer site, where you've got not perhaps the companies that are not perhaps in the forefront of the research, but actually have the opportunity to develop research and perhaps more SMEs. I mean, we're doing quite a lot of research on understanding how that will work. But that demand pool from science and technology businesses, some nearly three quarters of a million in the UK, is a possibility. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week for more fascinating tales from the world of science. All that's left for me is to thank my guests and contributors, Fiona Godley and Duncan Jarvis from the BMJ, Diana Garnham and Andrew Jack. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.